0: Listen to the Inside Curling podcast ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Well, here we are. Hi again, everybody. Jungle Jim Jerome coming at you with another episode of Inside Curling. I dressed up for you guys. You see my painting shirt, Kev? Okay. <laughs> that looks really good. I, I do it when Warren makes me really upset. I go, uh, go crazy with painting.
1: Uh, Warren, how are you doing? I'm just fine, Jim. Things are lovely here in the West Coast. <laughs> His tone scares me all the time. Uh, the show goes
0: on, Kev. You're down in uh, Calgary, Warren's out West. And I'm here in Edmonton, great show we have for you. We want to thank our sponsors, first of all, who are back on board with us again, Sports Interaction. They bring you what is happening around the curling world. Nestle Boost, uh, the sponsor of our mailbag, Cody Tractor, brings you Hot Rock Topics. And of course, Goldline has been sponsoring In the House, our guest spot, which we do have today. First, what's happening around the curling world? There's a couple of events that happened this week. Kevin, you're going to bring us up to speed, the men's IG wealth management showdown was in swift current the women's autumn gold in calgary and a men's event over in switzerland in Bern. the grand prix they call it the pan continental cup just got underway in calgary uh we're going to take a quick look at that that's a qualifier for teams to go to the world's war and they're going to bring us up to speed on all of that we have talked on the show the past uh, couple of weeks about the challenges currently taking place with curling in the usa uh, and we're going to get an update on that uh there's a ugly story of course that we've been bringing to you, and Warren, you've got an update. Hot Rock Topics. Uh, Look for a while, like Vancouver was going to have a bid in place to host the 2030 Olympic Games, the Winter Olympics, uh, that collapsed last week, Uh, and we're going to see what happened there and what the future looks like for the Winter Games. Uh, Mailbag over the years, a number of discussions have taken place regarding the use of single hack placed on the center line rather than having a separate hack for right-handed and uh, left-handed curlers. We got an email that asks about that matter. I'll be interested in hearing what you boys say. In the house, Olympic gold medalist Tyler George with Team USA in 2018 with John Schuster. When they won, uh, he's going to join us to bring us up to speed on all things in the U.S. curling. Okay, what's happening around the curling world? Brought to you by Sports Interaction, providing competitive odds on all sports. Sports Interaction is Canada's odds maker, and we want you to be 19 years old to play. Kevin, the events we talked about, the men were in Swift Current, the women were in Calgary. What's going on there, those two events?
2: Yeah, well, let's start with the women's, the Autumn Gold. Now, the Autumn Gold's been going on for a long, long time, since the 70s, and it's just one of the best events on the women's tour. It's at the Calgary Curling Club, and they have lots of great teams. But remember, I was talking about Unji Gim and how Mm -hmm. good the South Korean team is. Well, they played the local favorite, Team Scheidegger, Casey Scheidegger, in the semi. And uh, beat Scheidegger in that game. On the other side, Michelle Yagi. That's a really good Swiss. Uh, hard to believe. Another great Swiss team. But yes, mm-hmm. another one of the top teams in the world. Uh, Yagi playing against Jennifer Jones, and uh, Yagi ended up beating Jennifer Jones in the semi, leaving uh, Yagi against Gim in the final. And I picked Gim last week. Didn't quite get there. This week she did. Ended up winning the final eight to two. So uh, the South Korean team is so strong. Mm -hmm. Uh, won that event, and that's a big feather in their hat. That's a big win for a a ladies' team. That's viewed as one of the best spiels in the world on the women's side in the men's the ig wealth management in swift current saskatchewan and once again a really good field um just some of the teams that are in a john epping colton flash and kevin cooey one young team that i want to bring up and this is a team that's been kind of coming on the radar and you know i, I really like as you know jim when it comes mm-hmm. to inside curling we like to talk about the up-and-comers and the young players that are doing well and jacques uh, goche a uh, young team out of Winnipeg. Um, Really strong. Actually beat Team Cooey uh, early on in the event. Ended up losing in the semifinals to Team Cooey, but put on a great show. Actually gave Kevin a steal of two in the seventh. Was tied up mm-hmm. with Hammer playing seven. So had a good chance to win the game, but ended up giving up a steal of two and seven. And uh, and Cooey ended up winning that game, going into the final against who else but the Nicodine crew. Still three-handed. Just rolling through everybody and beat Team Cooey six to three in the final. Team of Dean winning in uh, Swift Current.
0: Speedy so crank, in, there's yep. your
2: update, Jimmy. But uh, great fields. It's it's certainly nice seeing the international fields in the world events that uh, are being played around Western Canada. What's
0: happening with the Dean? Any update, Kev? Have you heard anything with the bad knee there?
2: Well, I'm not sure he's really worried about getting back on the ice. <laughs> the he just I think the way it works for the Dean right now, his his. His leg hurts a lot, but he seems to be able to manage to get to the bank
0: <laughs> yeah. every week to make that deposit. So I, th- I think he's doing okay. You know, I figure he probably <laughs> wrecked his knee, you guys, lifting his wallet. That's probably what happened. Yeah. Uh, for uh, well, we wish Nick the best. Uh, Nick knows that.
2: Yeah, we all course. care about him a lot. And
0: hopefully yeah, he'll be back on the ice soon. Very good, Kevin. Thank you for that update. The first ever Pan Continental Cup got started Monday in Calgary. I saw a very big win by a young team. Warren. Bring us up to date on everything happening there.
1: Well, the first ever Pan-Continental Championship got underway on Monday in Calgary. Of course, Kevin's on the ground there, so I'll just give the preamble, and he can give us his feelings of what's taking place on the ground in Calgary. On the women's side, the A Division, there are nine teams competing, and the top five will earn a berth in this year's Women's Worlds being held in Sweden. I suggested incorrectly last week that both the Canadian men and women would have a spot on their respective world events without having to be in the top five here. But I was wrong. I should have known better. It's only the Canadian men who have an automatic spot into the Worlds because it's in Ottawa. The women will have to earn their spot, but I don't think they will have a big problem doing that because Carrie Anderson is rolling right along and doing quite well. And besides Carrie, there will be four other teams at this event that will end up in the Women's Worlds. The teams that should include Canada, as mentioned, in the end, I believe will be USA, Japan, and Korea. I think a fifth spot will be up for grabs, probably between the balance of the field, Australia, Brazil, Hong Kong, New Zealand, and Kazakhstan. In the men's side of the equation, in the A division, there are eight teams competing with only four qualification spots, again, because Canada has already qualified. The four nations I give the best chance of making it through are the USA, Japan, Korea, and probably Australia, because Dean Hewitt, who did so well in the mixed doubles last year in the Olympics, is skipping the Australian entry. So the big thing is that Brad Gushu is playing for here is the title of being the first ever Pan-Continental Champion. Playoffs will be taking place on Saturday and Sunday. Kevin, what's going on over there? There's a big game yesterday between Gushu and the USA. What happened there?
2: Well, there's big games, actually quite a few big games. You're right, Corey Dropkin and and Gushu uh, had a great game. Brad, on his first one, tried to come around to the back four, came up a little bit light. And then on his last went the other turn and tried to come around to the back four, and it just hung out in the open, and that enabled uh, Corey to play a soft weight hit to get rid of it and count a big four-ender. And that really put the game away for the U.S. So a huge win for U.S. over Canada in that one. But I agree with you when it comes to the teams that should make it. Um, you mentioned in the men's side, New Zealand, or to Australia, but Australia actually gave up a steal coming home to New Zealand and uh, New Zealand beat them. New Zealand's a, a young men's team who have been putting a ton of effort into the game. They look very good, uh, but I, I agree with you. It, the fifth spot on the men's side should end up between New Zealand and Australia. I'm kind of going opposite of you. I think New Zealand will sneak in there, but both are very good teams. On the women's side, it, besides Korea, USA, Canada, and Japan, those four, the fifth spot side is a real toss-up. Hong Kong today uh, won a really good one. Really good draw team. New Zealand, once again, they're pretty good. Australia has a chance. So there's quite a bit of depth on the women's side for that final fifth spot. Should be really good. I want to read you, though, Jimmy. This is kind of cool. In the B pool. So there's two hockey rinks that are made up into curling clubs right now or cur- curling facilities. The the A side is being played in the main stadium where the bubble was last year. Right. The B pool is in a second uh, rink. On the women's side, you got Chinese Taipei, Kenya, Mexico, and Nigeria fighting it out. It's just it's fun to watch. Right. I, I was able to sneak over there, kind of you know, busy on the one side, but if our games end early, I can run over and and watch the end of uh, a couple of games over there. On the men's side, Hong Kong, India, Kazakhstan, Kenya, Nigeria, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia. It is absolutely phenomenal to watch these new countries. I just love this event. The B pool, the top teams move up to the A pool, and the bottom of A move down to B. Mm -hmm. So in the A pool, going forward, we're going to get to see teams that we've never seen at the world level before, and I think it's absolutely phenomenal. I think it's great for the growth of curling, and it it, it was something that was necessary because as we get to now 67 teams in the uh, World Curling Federation, you get up to 75, 80, 85, 90. We've got to have these teams have a, a mechanism to improve the game and make it up into the A pool, and then make it into the World Championships, and then make it into the Grand Slam series a, a way, a mechanism, a staircase. Mm-hmm. For these countries and and for anybody to doubt it to say, well, there's no way India is going to be in the in the grand Slams anytime soon. It wouldn't have been many years ago when you would have said there's no way Italy is going to be the top right. of a curling podium and they're going to win events around the, the world on the world curling tour. It's happening. And guess what? If you give the mechanism the staircase, any country can win in that, and that's fantastic.
0: Did you ever think Kevin Kenya, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, India? No, I am a very positive thinker and, and, and think about growth and the big picture of sport. But that's that's a stretch. But you can sure see it now. So over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the USA curling. Uh, not the best of times for them. A couple of big things happening that aren't fun for them. The controversy setting around USA curling, suspending the Grand National Curling Club. And of course, CEO Jeff Plush and the allegations of abuse taking place between players and coaches when he was the commissioner of the National Women's Soccer League about six years ago. Oh my God, this thing may never go away for them. Uh, but there's an update, Warren.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jim. So our guest today, Tyler George, we'll get into this quite a bit with him, but I'll give you the update as uh, what's happened since we last talked. Following our discussions last week, the calls and social media were loud and clear for CEO Jeff Plush to resign. And finally, on Friday the 28th, that happened. Dean Gammill, who is on staff as Director of Curling Development, has been named the interim CEO. Gammill is actually a Canadian who comes from Northern Ontario originally. He actually moved to Quebec to go to university. He actually played in the Briar out of Quebec in 1988 under the Quebec banner. He moved to the USA in 1991, but did not start with curling in the USA until 2006. And he was actually on the team that won the USA Championship in 2012. So Dean does have a curling background, so we've got a curler stepping to that role, at least on the interim basis. The challenges for Gamel and US curling are, are many. I look at it probably in the following order. I think getting the organization united again will be their first challenge. Needs to be a lot of discussion and an attempt to determine a path forward that considers both club recreational curlers and high-performance athletes, and maybe a consideration that they don't mix anymore should be a path that they take a look at. They need to determine when and where the 2023 U.S. Nationals are going to be held, because right now that's also a mystery, and figure out a way through the organization's current financial woes, which again haven't been talked a lot about, but they have some problems, and uh, it's the elephant in the room and have a head office actually for the association as well, which virtually right now doesn't exist. So they have a few things they've got to dig into. Kevin, had any update from your end?
2: Yeah, well, no, but I'm sure I'm excited to have uh, Tyler George on the show today and, and here, cause he's part of the athletes commission and, and very involved down south in all aspects of the game. He visits a lot of clubs, does a lot of great work to, uh, to help clubs uh, out. So he'll, he'll definitely have some opinions. And f- from my point of view. It's one of our, our fastest-growing nations in our sport. So uh, the sooner this gets resolved and we get curling, uh, I guess, get rid of the cloudiness of curling down yeah. south, the better, because uh, um, that's a country that's been growing like crazy. And the, the, the athletes are getting so much better all the time that hopefully it goes away quick, get this thing under control, organized, and worry about... Uh, for the
0: U S to worry about winning medals again and not worry about this type of stuff. You wonder the fallout, if they knew this about plush and then went ahead and appointed him, there's probably going to be more coming down the pipe about that. Yuck. Anyway, not a great story, but okay. That's what's happening around the curling world. Thank you for the updates, fellas. Hot rock topics brought to you by coyote tractor. If you have work to do, coyote has the tractors, UTVs and ZTRs to do it. We dig dirt. Uh, Last fall, Vancouver was really seriously considering putting a bid toward the 2030 Winter Games in Vancouver. A group that was actually led by three Aboriginal nations and supported by the city of Vancouver seemed to be on the move. Something happened this week, Warren.
1: Well, it seems like the event is probably dead. As you mentioned, it was supported by the three Aboriginal nations within Vancouver and the city of Vancouver. But last week, the province of BC made a public announcement and said no that the province of British Columbia will not be supporting the bid, which means the federal government will be out as well. The main reason given, the cost for the bid overall, if everything was to go through to completion, would be around $4 billion, a large chunk of that having to be bid off probably by the province of BC, and they just felt it was too much at this time. Probably, I suppose, the right decision. The BC government got uh, kicked pretty good here about two months ago when they announced that they were going to have a billion-dollar update to the Provincial Museum, and they had to withdraw that one because it didn't go over very well. So I suspect it was the same reasoning. But it's going to be interesting to see what happens from here with regard to the 2030 Games, because there were actually two other bids, sort of, Sapporo, Japan, and Utah, Salt Lake City. Uh, Salt Lake City recently has suggested that they may may, may be more interested in the twenty thirty four Olympics than rather than twenty thirty because of Los Angeles hosting the twenty twenty eight games, and there are some issues as well in Sapporo that doesn't exactly make it a slam dunk. Although it appears right now to be the only option, what is the future of the Winter Games? It seems to be becoming more and more expensive. Seemingly fewer people. Interested in it. It's been very good for curling from our end of things. I mean, I was part of the group that fought hard back in the 80s to get first to be a demonstration sport in 88 mm-hmm. and then to be a medal sport. And we had to scramble to get the 25 nation minimum that we were required to even qualify for a medal status at that time. Mm-hmm. Today, there is roughly 68 nations are now members of the World Curling Federation, all of which is uh, the result of the Olympics. The Olympics are probably the main funder of the World Curling Federation. Every four years, they get a check for it used to be about 20 million. It maybe is a little less now, but it's a fair chunk and it's what really keeps the World Federation going. Here in Canada, the Canadian Olympic Committee, like every Olympic Committee around the world, gets another large chunk from each Olympic Winter Games. And again, a major chunk of that goes towards the training and development of the Canadian athletes who potentially could be going to the Olympics. So that's all tied into that. And even though the athletes directly involved in the Olympics don't see any money in their pocket out of it, uh, it has a lot of spin offs that do impact a lot of the curlers around the world. So I guess the question is where do the Olympics go from here? I took her the winter. Summer seems to be okay, but the winter is the issue. Does it uh, maybe? go into just a couple of sites and rotate it back and forth. So the facilities are in place and things stay the same, hard to say, but I think this is something we need to watch going forward. How do you see it, Kevin? What do you think might be the future?
2: Yeah. Where does it go? That's interesting. It's it's, it's so expensive because it's the facilities. You have to build these facilities and they're very, very expensive. Now, that being said, when it's all done and these facilities exist, it's great for the athletes of that nation or that area. So there's that upside, but the cost is a lot. No question about that. But you bring up quite a point about maybe having two or three nations that have the facilities full time, and you can move the Olympics from one to the next, to the next, and therefore the infrastructure stays. Interesting thought, you know, the problem is you don't have the, the big growth of curling in the nation where you come once to the Olympics, the kids all fall in love with these sports and they do it. And and you see the big bump (laughs) in the participation of these various athletic activities. In my mind, it's certainly best that the Olympics continue to move and, and run the way they are, but you know, if costs become too high, then I guess at the end of the day, we just need to make sure we have our young athletes able to grow and to, to enjoy all of these different sports and be able to uh, put on a great show because that's what it's really all about is, is about youth and uh, and being able to, to win. And that's what the Olympics, in my opinion, is all about. Participation, yes, but getting on top of that podium. And it's everybody's dream is to, to do that if you're an athlete. So how do we make that happen? Right now, it's, it's going on as it is, but if it gets to be too expensive, other things will have to be looked at. You're right.
1: I think a couple of big issues that were from the Vancouver Games in 2010, and, and looking at this bid for 2030, they tried to claim there were, the facilities were in place, but they really aren't. The curling facility wouldn't be in existence. Uh, The uh, speed skating oval is not in existence. Athletes Village uh, would have to be brand new. The Nordic combined uh, skiing events would have to be brand new. So it wasn't really facilities in place. The other issue is that of cost of security. For the games here in 2010, I think the security costs went to almost a billion dollars. And I think the two challenges going forward is going to be the venues and the security.
0: Can you imagine the guys putting the budget together and then go yeah, four billion? That's <laughs> yeah, a big number. It's a lot of the zeros. seven, multiply by two. <laughs> the other thing is Warren Kevin. People don't like the Olympics. There, there's more people that that'll surprise you that aren't interested in it, having it in their city. They're not interested in paying the dough, they're, you know, and living in the province and all the costs of it and stuff like that. So it's not always as popular as you would think. We'll see. So there we go. Hot rock topics. And that's a hottie for sure. $4 billion. My God. It's a lot of hot cash. We've got our mailbag segment coming up right now, brought to you by Nestle Boost. Complete nutrition to fuel your day. Patrick Gillis from the St. Paul Curling Club in Minnesota has asked a very short question uh, for you guys. Could you please discuss the single hack proposal? It's pros and cons. Single hack, I? First of all, one hack at the center line. No left or right anymore.
2: Correct. That's what they're talking about. Okay. You go first. Sure. So, uh, Patrick, I was just down at your club the other day. So, uh, love your club, and uh, yeah, a lot of good friends down there. We're down there quite often these days. But anyway, one hack. There's a few issues with that. I guess if it was wide enough, the drawback position that's being taught is to bring the the rock back under the crease in your arm, under your armpit, not to your toe. So, if that's the case, you'd want to have... The starting the tangent on the center line, you're going to have to have your foot to the left of the center line, depending on the width of your shoulders. So the way hacks are built today, I would love to see them be slightly closer together so that uh, females without wide shoulders can actually start the rock under the crease in her arm, which is very close to center line. Mm-hmm. And that way her out turn and in turn tangents can be equal. And that's something that when you have two hacks for Mark Kennedy And myself, when we curled together, we both squeezed to the, to cheated to the inside of the hack. And that way his lefty outturn, my righty intern, would have the exact same tangent and therefore curl the exact same amount. You could broom accordingly. If you only had one hack in the middle, let alone if it's a wide hack, you're going to have people that still lift the rock, hit it. Because, of course, it's, you clunk the rock into it, it's, it's in the way. But that being said, it won't be very long before nobody lifts. But a rock in the middle, if there's only a normal width of hack, then I'm going to be starting my rocks two or three inches because of the width of my shoulders to the right of the center line. I can't start it on the center line and have my tangents be the same because, obviously, it's in the middle. So it doesn't. the physics of it doesn't work, but the hacks the way they are today... I certainly would like to see them be flat and not concave the way a lot of the ones that are used are. I wish they would be flat. The days of lifting the rock and, and cushioning your foot in the middle of a concave hack, thats just not a thing anymore because people don't do the Pewee Pickering lift anymore. It's not a thing. So the hacks need to change. They got to be flat and maybe a little bit closer together than what they are today, taking into account females with not as wide of shoulders, and that way they can throw from the center line both in turn and out but as far as that that'd be the only two changes I would make to the hack today not just one hack that's a foot and a half or two feet wide you could do that how do you keep the person from going way to the other side to increase their angle uh, on an out turn come around you can almost be coming at a different completely different direction so those are the problems that I see and uh, Warren what do you think I think I tried to answer that pretty clearly
1: Well, this is uh, not from my era, because my era had a backswing in the delivery, so the the rock was coming off the ice. And so I think you've already related to that actuality, because the fact that the rock always started from the center line, and depending upon how far out you were going to left or right, depending upon how much the center line was... uh, dissecting the stone. So it was then going back into an arc and it was coming back in the same way that it went out. So when you start delivering with a a no backswing delivery, you're talking about quite a different thing that you are far more familiar with than I am. I know there's different philosophies on this whole idea out there. So I know there's some people going to say, one hack is what we have to have. But uh, I think, again, it's uh, some of the things you suggested, Kevin, have to be taken in consideration before this actually happens. But I kind of got a feeling that it is going to happen, don't you?
2: Definitely not. There's no way. There are some nations uh, who believe to bring the rock straight back to your toe. It's not the majority. It's a minority. And you get some great athletes who can do it. But for the most part... It's not your strongest position. That's the that's the bottom line. If you go to lift a 50-pound bag in front of you, you're not putting it in front of your toe. I'll guarantee you. it's going to be right underneath the crease in your arm, or you're not going to be able to lift that bag up, or it's not going to be four inches away from your body. Can't lift it. And that's the simple physics of it. It, it will not be the future. No. Unless it's very, very wide. Now, you could put a white stripe on the hack, and you're not allowed to move your foot past that um, because very few people lift the rock. I guess as long as you made it a foot and a half wide or something, and then you had to stay on your half, and then depending on the width of your shoulders, you could move very close to the line so that you could have the tangents be the same. Sure, that wouldn't affect anybody that doesn't lift it. Anybody that would lift the rock, though, is then in big trouble because they're going to clunk into the rubber hack behind. So I guess if nobody lifts a rock anymore, you could have one hack that's a foot and a half or two feet wide. How does the person step around it? If it's, a, if it's a female with very narrow shoulders, her foot's going to hit it. So if you lift the rock, your rock's going to hit it. And if it's too wide, your foot's going to hit it. The only way is if it's only a normal width of hack and then the physics makes no sense. So no, this,
0: it will not work. Warren, do you remember, uh, because you're a h- historian, who started the slide? Do you remember who the first guy was to try it? Or Kevin? That
1: You're talking about a no back swing delivery?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're the yeah, no lifting of the rock.
1: Well, the first guy that uh, we ever encountered with it from from my era was uh, was Darren Fish from Edmonton when he won the Canadian Juniors in nineteen seventy eight. Oh, okay, with the tuck slide. Yes, and I think Kevin, you were the first from day one. You never had a backswing delivery with flat foot. With flat foot. Yeah, Darren had, uh, Fish had a tuck slide. This was a phenomenon that I think hit everybody because all of a sudden this little wee guy was coming out of the hack a 1,000 miles an hour without any kind of a backswing and throwing big wig takeouts. Uh, we actually commissioned a biomechanics study on his delivery back in 1979 oh, okay. as a result of trying to figure out exactly how and where was his momentum coming from. So cool. that's, that's where it basically started was with him in 1978, I guess, when he won the Canadian Juniors.
0: That was Patrick from St. Paul, I think. Yeah, Patrick from St. Paul, thanks a lot. Appreciate that. Uh, email us. Uh, we would love to read them. We would love to look at them. Uh, and maybe yours will end up on the show, insidecurling at gmail.com. Uh, we got a guest coming into the house, uh, brought to you by Goldline Curling Equipment. Goldline curling equipment can be found in pro shops and curling stores all around the world, plus their retail stores in Calgary, London, Scarborough, Mississauga, and they've got two stores in Ottawa. Goldline can be found at every Grand Slam of Curling event and online anytime at goldlinecurling.com. As promised, we got a guest. By the way, fellas, I uh, once in a while you'll hear my garage door open. I loaded an app on my new garage door opener on my phone, so you can open your garage from your phone anywhere. <laughs> and every time I get a call, now the thing opens. So I don't know. What, <laughs> I don't know what I did. Uh, uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, he is from the USA and uh, was a top level curler there, and he's do- doing some commentary with Kevin now in Calgary. We're talking about Tyler George, who played third for John Schuster in 2018 when the team won a small little prize. Uh, We call it the Olympic gold medal. Um, When the games were in Korea, way to go, uh, Tyler. We're happy to have you on board. How's it going, Tyler?
3: Everything's good, Uh, you know, listing my accomplishments. Basically, I just try to do whatever Kevin does. You know, I got Olympic gold. Now I'm in the commentary booth. Uh, He seems to do pretty well. So I just look at his uh, resume and then I chase that down.
0: All right, that's enough of the sucking up, Tyler. Yeah. Okay, no more of that, okay?
3: <laughs> what's, what's Kevin like on air? You know, Warren and I have always wondered. That's It's pretty much the same. PG version, I think, would be the best way to put it. But <laughs> <laughs> quick, sharp, you know, he's always ready to fill the downtime and very professional in the booth. The, you know, it's been fun learning from and working with him, uh, from the NBC time to the uh, World Curling TV time now, too.
0: Uh, we talk a lot about the U.S a and we talked about recently of course there's some stories floating around that aren't good but give us uh the state of the nation with with u.s curling and and how it is right now and and your take on everything with the sport and the growth of it
3: well as much as it's been talked about lately i'm sure you guys are almost as up to speed as as we are down here curling community is tight-knit as it is people are talking all the time and yeah it's a it's a major issue right now but uh Yeah, with the changeover at the top with our CEO resigning and uh, Dean Gemmel now is the interim CEO, uh, I I think it's a good time right now having a curler in that position, somebody that people know, somebody that's accessible for the members. I think there was a disconnect, and there has been uh, to a certain extent for quite a while now with uh, USA Curling as an organization and its member clubs. uh, People that are upset with the way things are right now are upset because they want things to be better and they want to have a better relationship with the NGB. People are looking for some direction now from somebody from our community, from Dean and uh, from the organization itself. And I'm sure there's going to be some turnover and some change coming from within the organization. and Other positions too. Uh, we'll see what happens with uh, the board going forward and the decisions that they make. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of upheaval, a lot of uncertainty, but it's a good step in the right direction towards bringing – people together and and instilling trust in the organization from its members again.
0: Mm -hmm. It sounds like, uh, Tyler, if you got tapped on the shoulder, uh, that you may step up and become part of it.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I I have no idea what that would entail, to be honest. Uh, You want to help in any way you feel like you can. I don't have any specific ambitions for a position. Kevin and I were talking about this earlier. If you feel like you have a platform and you can do something, you do want to be involved. But... What that would be, I really can't say. I have no idea. I'm happy with what I do right now. And if that's Mm -hmm. what I end up doing going forward as an ambassador for the sport and uh, helping clubs promote and build and putting together events for their members, uh, whatever it is that clubs need to to help, that's what I'm doing now. And and I'm very happy with that. So if that's the position that I keep going forward, something that I feel is doing good and helping the sport in our country, then I'm very happy with that.
0: Yeah, before I flip it over to Kevin, just one more question. Um, we often hear uh, in Canada with all our curlers, you know, particularly the top-level guys and peak performers, in the idea of growing the sport and what needs to happen uh, going forward, almost all the players that we interview say that they need a place at the table with Curling Canada. And if we hear it once, we hear it many, many, many times, where there's smoke, there's fire, about this Do players have a place at the table there with USA Curling?
3: I think they will more going forward. I think they did to a certain degree over the last few years, too. But I I think the general attitude has been that players, especially the ones that are at the elite level, uh, they just want to play their games and and not get involved in everything that's going on around them. In in any sport, really, that's, that's kind of your goal, is to stay focused on the task. And you're not really worried about your position or... Uh, where you are in the organization as much as you are winning games and trying to get on top of podiums. So that may change a little going forward because I think players are realizing they have more influence and more of a platform that they can do things to help their sport, whether it's at a grassroots level or at an organizational level. But it, it should be said that there isn't really any obligation for the elite athletes to do something if they don't feel that they're qualified to do it. That seat at the table doesn't feel like it's something that. They're comfortable with, or where they could have an impact, then it's just fine that they go and they play their games. They try to win as many as they can and help the sport on the competition side of things. And that was the the biggest contribution that our team made to our sport was winning at the Olympics. And that gave us the platform that now we can do something more significant if we choose to put ourselves in that position. And uh, for the time being, again, you know these these players are they're just doing the best they can to train and get themselves prepared to, to win in top-level competitions and get the United States in a better standing for you know, world rankings overall. You know, whether they choose to be more involved or have that spot at the table, that, that's really up to each individual player.
0: Uh, keep it up, Tyler. You're going to talk your way into a job, even though you don't think. Uh, <laughs> Kev, over to you. Well, yeah. So this is interesting. Over the first uh, couple of minutes here, we've,
2: talked, uh, we've entered into the high-performance realm of the sport but then also the grassroots level of uh, the USCA and and the clubs. And I guess the first question to ask you, uh, Tyler, is, I guess, what would you do first uh, if you put on the hat, the CEO hat, when it comes to grassroots curling and, and, you know, the the problems exist today? There's, you know, obviously quite a divide right now. But if it's somebody like you that both sides trust and know very, very well, there's probably, you've probably been in pretty much every curling club in the United States, I would think, And to be able to draw everybody back together, what would be day one, minute one for you? What would you do?
3: I I think that's the simplest part of of the equation with this is that a lot of the disconnect, and we had this conversation the other night in a, a players meeting, and I think it's okay to talk about this publicly, that a lot of the disconnect with the clubs and the organization is from the fact that the clubs don't believe that USA curling cares about their needs and their wants and what can help them grow and prosper. Whether that's fact or not, the perception is what matters for that relationship. So sitting down at the table or just going and being in the door in these clubs and asking them, what is it that we can do to endear ourselves to you? What is it we can do to repair this relationship? What do you need from us that you're not getting? And whether that answer is something they feel like USA Curling is already providing but it's not being acknowledged is immaterial. It's about what the clubs think. And if the members now have the perception that USA curling wants to fulfill their needs and wants to help them grow and prosper the actions themselves that follow that's secondary really is as strange as it sounds what the clubs believe is the biggest thing. And if they have somebody and I'm hoping that Dean takes this on too, and I think he will having more contact directly with the clubs themselves and asking in a conciliatory manner, what can we do for you? Don't tell them what you offer, which is what's been going on for the last couple of years. Don't tell them why you should be happy to be a member of USA Curling. Ask them directly what they can do and what they need. And I think that's a huge first step. And anything you do, putting those things together, whether it's camps, ice tech things, events for members, uh, anything with helping them promote media opportunities, you know, It's different with every club, and I've found that with the traveling events that I do, that you don't just walk in and say, here's the template of what I can offer. You say, okay, I've done a lot of these things. Here's some options, but what do you need? What can I do to help you out? That's step one. That's really the biggest thing that anybody in charge would do. And then acting on those things, obviously, will make a huge difference too. But showing up, being accessible, showing that you actually care about your relationships with the club's because curling is such a community-oriented sport that that attitude of, we know you're there, we hear you, we care, is something that's been missing for a few years now.
2: Yeah, every club, and I'll let Warren in just a second, every club in in, in the world, I would imagine, would enjoy having uh, a young person from their club end up doing what you guys did and get to the top of the podium. That's, that would be the dream of, of every of every club, recreational or not. And that's where the crossover, I think, really obviously exists when you've got all the curling clubs across the U.S. or across the world and the young competitors growing and trying to get good. And then the high performance, because you need these young people to get good, to get into the high performance program so they can start to be successful. Um, I guess I'd love to hear from your side of things, from the high performance side, to grow curling. Now, you do have tremendous young athletes in the U.S. I've said it before on this podcast, the growth of your athletes, there may be a little bit lacking in maybe the depth of the pool.
3: I, I think there's, again, and this is a perception thing, a belief that if you're not inside that circle of the elite athletes that are already in the high performance program, that there isn't really a path in to succeeding at the elite level. I think a secondary program is, is needed, really, within high performance. And they have grown the program in recent years, I, I have to say. You know, adding the U25s was a big step. And trying to get funding for these extra programs, obviously, is, is a difficult thing, too. But even having somebody in, in a hired position, you can travel around and put together camps for players that are outside that's HP, that, that elite program. Uh, because we're losing our secondary level players when they get out of juniors, you know this is not an uncommon thing in any country. But you know the twenty two, twenty three, twenty four year old players, especially when they get done with college, they get out of juniors. Then you know they get in the real world, and without any funding, all of a sudden it's pretty difficult to play a sport that uh, doesn't pay you right out of the gates. So those decisions are are difficult to make for our our young talent that could be our next wave, and and I think facilitating some kind of transition program and the U25 program that USA curling has is a good start. But I think there needs to be something that's not just saying we have one team for men's, one team for women's, one mixed doubles team in U25 and that's our U25 program. I think it needs to be something where we go to the players more and send HP coaches, or again, if it's a hired position, somebody traveling around the country to put these things together and bring the players to you in these regions now you're saying, okay, we're, we're in front of you. We're coming to you. We want to help you get better, give these players a template of how they can train when those high-level coaches are around, but put together some kind of consistent program where we're not losing that type of talent. And it doesn't have to be just for u 25. That's just the biggest example because that's where we lose the most talent. But you know, any age player that wants to get from an intermediate or competitive level to an elite level there needs to be some more outreach to them so they don't feel like they're on their own or that if they don't get selected from the combine or asked to join that they don't have any other way in of getting better outside of doing it on their own.
1: Yes. So Tyler, let me uh, kind of stay down that same road for a second. And I look at this issue is maybe more prevalent in the U.S. than Canada because the club dues in the United States play a major factor in what the association can do, but not so much here in Canada, at the moment anyway. But I look at the uh, the clash between the recreational club player and the uh, elite players in the U.S. And I think, probably have heard the word many times, why should I pay $34 to a national body a year? What does that go towards? And I look at that situation and I wonder, is it a time, not just in the U.S., but even in Canada, for there to be a clear line between the clubs and the recreational players and the elite high-performance players, and that they don't really fit in the same pod anymore. They're kind of parallel. When a do is charged to a member of a club, that maybe it's defined how much that is going to high-performance elite athletes, how much is going back to the club, but maybe the clubs have a total different need uh, from the national body's point of view to assist in many, many things. Uh, I, I think of a common problem we have here in, in Canada where the clubs are paying huge uh, electrical bills and, and the uh, national body and combined with local ones could go a long way to trying to alleviate those kind of problems. And the type of things that clubs are interested in doesn't impact to a very large degree the high-performance athletes. And is there is there a need to probably try to work in developing two separate channels? And I think this dispute with the Grand National Club, probably that has a lot to do with it, doesn't it?
3: Yeah, I think it's kind of brought it to light more, certainly. That's a conversation that's been going on for quite a while. You can fall on either side of it because there are ways to fix things with the system set the way it is, or again, as you mentioned, you could go to just a split altogether where the HP or elite athletes are being are separate completely from the uh, grassroots level curling in the clubs uh, as far as a membership level goes. Yeah, I, I've thought a lot about it, Warren, and, and honestly, I've gone back and forth because... I think that there is a way forward because especially I mean when you look at the GNCC situation the reason that they're not saying we're okay we're done with being members we don't want to be involved anymore is because they think that there is a path forward with a better relationship with USA curling that they can help them grow and prosper and that those 34 dollars ends up going towards something that does help the club in the future and help grassroots curlers and for a nominal fee like that, if you do feel like you're getting aid from your NGB, then it hasn't been an issue for members to pay in the past. You know They're not upset about the dollar amount itself. They're upset about what they get from it. So if they feel like they, they are getting help with promotional events, or they are getting help with running camps in their region or clinics and, uh, and ice tech camps and media events, uh, learn to curls, open houses, whatever it is that they feel like they need. And if that relationship is repaired, I think that that grumbling is going to go away real quick. If you do decide to go the route where you're splitting things, then you start to talk about single member payments too. So competitive curlers, and that's certainly come up too. And it did come up in the members assembly. You know, It's like a golf model where you're paying as an individual, as opposed to a club, to be eligible for play downs. And It's a tricky spot with that because immediately if it does happen, and I know we we lost a lot of clubs with regard to member fees right now, but if entire clubs and members aren't required to pay a fee because they're a member of a USCA member club, the amount of people that are paying dues is probably going to go down significantly, but there could be multiple avenues. As you said, you could pay as a competitive player for that single membership, or you could pay as a club member on the grassroots side of things, as long as there's still transparency with regard to where those funds are going, as you said. So if, the, if you're paying as a member club or a, a member athlete, uh, then you wanna know that those dollars are going towards helping your club. And if you're paying as a competitor, then you wanna know that those dollars are going towards helping elite athletes. So if you could have a, a two avenue system where you know exactly where the, that money is going, I, I could see that working. It's just I'm not the one to put it together probably.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it would it, be complicated.
3: Yeah, it's a, a smarter man than I or smarter woman than I could probably uh, put something like that together. But I could see it working. Yeah, it just would take some time to get it together.
1: I think it has to start somewhere because both sides benefit from the other as well. I mean, the the club benefits from the profile that the high-performance athletes are going to give the sport. So it's going to bring new members and uh the high performance end of it benefits from the club end because that's going to be their fans or supporters or television viewers so and their
3: pipeline uh, possibly too and their
1: pipeline yes so it's in lockstep and i mean that's the other challenge that has been facing usa curling for a long time and that's the lack of of corporate involvement which means the profile of the of the major events and as you're well aware i worked a couple of years on trying to Build the brand higher is what we were basically trying to do. And I I thought we were coming along pretty good in the fact that Curling Night in America was there fairly solid. The profile brand of the national championships was getting a little stronger every year. And we were very close to the point of having some corporate involvement there a couple of times. The television side of it was the key factor because much like we faced here in Canada back in the early 90s, the television network, which is NBC for curling in the USA at the moment, are fully prepared to carry the product. They like the product, but they're not going to invest money in producing it. And so that was a challenge that we were having, and I'm sure still is is facing everybody today. So as I look going forward, maybe again, the brand has to start back basically from square one probably now, but it's got to be built again. I would hope the Curling Night in America thing can come back in some aspect, but I think that's the other challenge. How do you as a player... Uh, in the U.S. think uh, how, all this should materialize and, and what can be done to make it better?
3: That's a very good question, again, because we've been working on that for, for quite a while now. And as long as I've been a competitive player, we've had issues with uh, bringing in corporate sponsorship and dollars to help promote the sports. Uh, obviously, Curling Night in America was great for our exposure because we had a lot of people watching that stuff. And that's the first time that we've had recurring curling events on regular television in the United States, let alone one that actually succeeded. So uh, I echo the sentiments on that. I hope that that comes back sometime in the future. That'd be great for us. But I think, again, the leadership going forward, whatever it might be, has to include that community aspect of curling in the promotion for the sport and in reaching out for dollars. And I think this past regime has looked at it as a one-man operation where it was a businessman that was saying, I'm going to go out and bring in, du- in money, bring in sponsors. You know, Basically, we're just trusting that that's going to happen and it really didn't materialize, uh, at least not to a level that would impact us financially.
1: And the problem is, and, and this is again what I was w- working on with Rick on, I mean, y- there's got to be a value in the brand so a corporate sponsor can come in and say, yeah, I can put a million dollars in that because I can see how it can give me a three million dollar return. And that's the challenge is to get the thing up to a property value that a company will come in and do that. And to really do that, you've got to get it onto television. It's kind of like what came first is the chicken or the egg. Back here in Canada, we were fortunate enough in the early 90s to have the St. Clair Group come in and prepared to make that investment to ensure that the whole product was put on television because Curling Canada could never afford it to do it. So that's the challenge you're facing. You've got to try and build a brand high enough that it can get acceptable onto TV and then and then you've got something that the corporate sponsor will will say come in and say yes, I like that. It can do something for me.
3: I would really like to see the athletes be asked to be more involved in that side of things too. So when you're you're working with these corporate groups, you bringing the athletes in, putting a face to the sport trying to make them more marketable. I saying, look at, hey, we got Matt Hamilton here. You know, look at this guy with the mustache and the long hair. Look at this character. This is going to be a part of your programs. <laughs> you know, letting the personalities of the players themselves get involved in this stuff. Right now, it's just sitting at a table with, yep. you know, the, uh, the executives and the lawyers and trying to figure out, are you going to give us money or not? Here's what we see. Here's how we see this working out. No, let's bring our personalities into this. Let's, and that helps the players, too, by giving them more of a profile. More opportunities to, to do events to promote the sport. And that's something that, you know, if you ask the athletes in the high performance program, even the guys from the Olympic gold medal team, USA Curling has not really worked at all to promote them to help their sport, you know, to put events together or to build goodwill with the clubs around the country, even having them with appearances. Now, that's a very simple program and an easy olive branch you can use for your clubs and for your marketing purposes because we do have. Marketable athletes. We have personalities. We have things that executives could look at and say, "Yeah, I'd like to have that guy on my channel, or I'd like to have uh, our logo on their jersey." Based on how they put themselves out there, now, we can attest to it because we've spent enough time with these athletes that these are not boring people. These are marketable human beings that we can use, and that's <laughs> our best resource we have in curling. And we just we've failed to do that to this point.
1: Yeah, you need that big room discussion that we talk about so often yeah. <laughs> for about three days. Uh, Tyler,
0: both Kevin and Warren, and and many of our listeners agree: uh, if the if the sport's going to grow, you've got, you have to get young people involved uh, for obvious reasons. Otherwise, it would die out. Curling has suffered a bit uh, in Canada with with low attendance and briars. To get young people in, it has to be cool. And curling, for a long time, what you know wasn't looked at as a cool sport. So everyone's saying, well, there needs to be changes. Warren has brought up some great points. It's got to be interactive. That got to be commercials. Got to be shorter. Perhaps the game has to, uh, you know, be dropped down to seven or eight ends. Should we look more at triples, at mixed doubles, at stick curling? All these things about keeping the interest up. What do you say to that, Tyler? uh, With with how are we going to attract young kids and grow it so so the interest stays up?
3: getting them in the door is the biggest thing to start with I mean, with any curler of any age you show up you try the sport out then it, it has an allure people love to play it they love the the inclusiveness of the sports mm-hmm. again a lot of that comes down to marketing Jim, because we have athletes like the young bucks in the u.s cory Dropkin's squad that's these guys are you know young energetic good-looking guys that that's again a resource that we need to tap into more for sending these guys around, you know, having them available at events, even grassroots advertising, doing the social media, you know, using, uh, I, I guess tiktok is the biggest thing now. I'm, I just turned 40. So I got to try to keep up with this. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all this stuff, you know, these are simple outlets we can use with our, especially younger athletes to, to advertise our sport, you know, and, to. Uh, that's the easiest way to get attention these days you know it's not as simple as just doing these camps and saying hey we're running a junior camp or a camp for 25 and under you know just come show up and you're going to love the sport you know that's how we've always done it but i I think usa curling has a major opportunity in particular putting together something like that having a media manager that involves the players more and i know i keep going back to a lot of the same things with Mm -hmm. we need to involve the players we got to get the players involved we have to use them for our marketing tools, but they work in all of these things. You know, it's not a complicated equation. So, you know, somebody like myself, you know, that's, that's probably a little past where I'm at. You know, I'm happy to promote as much as I can and help these clubs. But if you do want to bring that younger crowd in, then yeah, use the younger athletes and talk to them see what kind of resources they have with, you know, maybe there's social media avenues I don't even know about. There's a very good chance of that at this point. That's a simple fix, and you're going to be in front of more people with those types of uh, avenues than anything else that you could use.
0: Uh, what about the game itself before we let you go? Do we shorten it? Do what, what do we do? Less rocks? There's all sorts of things we get from people on email. Like, what are you thinking, Jim? 13 total? Or- <laughs> 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 I get seven. You guys get four. Okay, that's what I'm going to do.
3: I would say less ends only for charity events, or less rocks maybe even. But uh, no, uh, I think the game has to go to eight ends eventually. The tide has turned pretty strongly, I think, in my time now with the WCF Athlete Commission talking with athletes about what they think needs to happen going forward. I know there's been discussion about uh, advertising revenue possibly lost because of less time on broadcast. I think that's something that's probably more in effect for Canada than anywhere else right now, probably not for us. But if we're going to get more TV opportunities and squeeze into that two-hour window, I think eight ends is is the way that we're going to need to go. I think it's going to happen sooner rather than later, too, based on the general sentiments. That two-hour frame is just so important for TV. And it it is a long game. And the the concerns about whether or not the better team still wins in an eight-end game over a 10-end game, I think are, are kind of diminishing now. In general, you know, you look at the the slams and the tour events, the best teams are still winning consistently in 8-end games. It's not really changing the results that much. So as long as we feel comfortable that we can bring in more revenue through an 8-end program than a 10-end one, then I don't see any reason why that shouldn't be the direction that we go. Sometime in the near future, with regard to no tick, I think there was some trepidation with that from the players once it was instituted, but... After playing it and getting used to it for a while, uh, they see the value in it with regard to viewership. Uh, the results of games in the small sample size that we have to this point show that the team, especially in that uh, all-important last end tied-up situation, uh, the team with hammer is still winning close to the same amount of games as they did before the no-tick rule. But the the end is more interesting. The game's more interesting overall, but especially those last few ends of the game where there's one objective in mind for both teams and that's all they're trying to accomplish. Again, as long as it's not really affecting the percentage of the total outcomes of these games, then the players are fine with it. And uh, I think they enjoy the the game itself more with the no tick rule. And again, in my athlete commission role, I haven't spoken with anybody who was vehemently against it. There are people that are Mm -hmm. uh, kind of in the middle and there are a lot of players that are strongly for it, but very few that are against it. So both of those things, I think, will end up being permanent fixtures for the sport going forward.
0: Kev, okay, you got anything else
2: before I let Tyler no, go? I sure appreciate uh, Tyler. We're going to see you in a few minutes back on air. <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah, no, no rest for the wicked.
2: You can see behind us the decor. Tyler and I are not sharing the same room. <laughs> no, okay. Uh, no. Uh, uh, you can tell we're in the yeah, same room. I hotel. can't reach
3: over and punch him right now <laughs> if he got me with an aha question or anything. But if, if you really want some entertainment tonight, though, make sure you watch Kevin's recast feed. He'll be doing a game all by himself at 7 Mountain Time. So that that conversation that he's always carrying on with himself anyways is going to be a literal one tonight.
0: He's never alone. There's about three voices in his head going all the time. I I, I had to do
3: the solo broadcast twice already. It's very interesting to to try to pull off. So uh, if I wasn't doing a game already, I would definitely be watching Kevin tonight.
0: Uh, Tyler, thanks so much for coming on. I'm, I, I sort of get lulled into complacency when we do these interviews that you actually won a gold medal. Uh, of course, Kevin did in 2010, and you did in 2018. Uh, and what an accomplishment that is. And I'd I, I love to ask guys, um, for, first of all, why'd you retire quickly?
3: Uh, there's a lot of reasons. Uh, I think the biggest one for me was just burnout. You know, uh, I, I'm not a Glenn Howard type of guy that just wants to play until you can't do it anymore. I... I played until I was 35. That was basically 25 years of curling for me with 20 years competitive. And The seasons get longer and longer. Uh, There's other things that you want to do in life, too. And uh, At the time when I retired, I thought it would be a temporary thing. I thought maybe I'd take a year off because I did that one time in the middle of my curling career and Mm -hmm. then came back uh, with the love for the game stronger than it had been before. In this particular scenario with the platform that you have after you accomplish that feat, I have more fulfillment now from the things I can do for the sport off the ice than I did on it. So if I win 10 more national championships, you know, maybe stumble into a world championship somewhere, yeah, that's going to be great to have in the trophy case and for a personal accomplishment. But it doesn't really do that much for our sport. And I feel like every time I go into these clubs around the country, all these appearances that I make, whether... You know, It's with uh, you know the arena clubs that are trying to get to dedicated ice or established clubs that are looking for promotional things or just member experiences. I feel like I'm doing something that matters. I feel that there's impact in, in what I'm able to accomplish in helping the sport going forward. And that fulfillment that I get from that role is what I used to get from competing. So as long as I still feel that way, and as long as my back still feels the way it does right now too, I'm right. happy being off the ice and... Uh, I, I don't really have that drive to do it again. It's not like I don't think I could, you know, if I chose to. You know, the, you, you get that fire every once in a while watching. We we talked about that last night too. That's, uh, you know, you, especially when you're watching your old team play and thinking, God, I, I if I was out there, I could do this, you know. But right. but putting in that work to get there and all the, the time on the road and the, the, the time in the gym and the practice and everything, you know, it's a lot to take on and understanding what it actually takes to get to that point and succeed at that level. And then looking at another four year quad and saying, Okay, that's what you have to do again if you want to get there, that's a that's a tough thing to take on. And as long as you have something that fills that gap for you, which I do with this role trying to promote the sport and helping it grow and helping the clubs, then I'm good with things. I, I have my fulfillment that still keeps me in the sport. Whatever I can do going forward to help, you know, that's yet to be determined. But as I said, if I just continue in the role that I'm in and I feel like I'm making an impact with what I'm doing, then I'm happy to do that. And uh, unless that changes, then that's what I'm going to keep doing.
0: If I won a gold medal, man, I would put it around my neck. I'd never take it off. Where's your gold medal?
3: Uh, it's, it's at home right now, just on my mantle next to uh, the television. Uh, it does travel with me pretty frequently because... A lot of the time I feel like I could just send the medal and stay home and people would be happy. Uh, but, yeah, it's it, it does a lot of traveling. The ribbon's almost completely torn off. Cool. Uh, the bar that attaches the ribbon to the medal is loose, and I can't get a jeweler uh, that'll actually do something with it because they're terrified. Uh, yeah, but, right. uh, yeah, that's that's part of the uh, the platform you get. That's part of the joy of sharing that experience. Cool. And our motto after we won was uh, it's, they're America's medals. We're just the ones that take them home at night.
0: Olympic gold medal is Tyler George. Thanks a lot for joining us, Tyler, uh, and, and all the questions you answered. This is great, great stuff. Good to get up to speed on what's going on, and uh, good luck working with Kevin. Were you supposed to work with Kevin? And then you said, no, forget it. He can do it by himself
3: tonight. <laughs> no, it's, it, it, it's designed to be a solo broadcast. <laughs> Kevin and I actually do have one game coming up later in the week. Uh, I believe it's the Canada-USA women's game. I'm supposed to be the play-by-play for that one, and Kevin's the color guy. So that's a new role for me. I've only done the play-by-play with that solo broadcast I did last night and this morning. So uh, that's going to be the high-pressure one, trying to, trying to set Kevin up. <laughs> Half the time I think I'll just, I'll just stay quiet and let him go or just start with, Kevin, what do you think? And then just let it, and let it be. Yeah, let it rip, yeah. yeah.
0: So far, his predictions this year have been terrible, so you should (laughs) bet him on the game. (laughs) Tyler, thanks a million, man, for joining us. I really appreciate it. Take care of yourself. We'll talk to you down the road.
3: Thanks, guys. Appreciate the time. Hey, thanks, Tyler, a lot. Thanks,
1: Tyler.
0: Well, there you have it. I like that guy, Kevin Tyler. <laughs>
2: yeah. Very talkative man. Yeah, he's, he's, he's excellent. A lot of knowledge. You know what? And a lot of passion
0: for the sport of curling. That, that I can promise. Yeah. Does he ever?
1: I wish he could express himself better. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be nice to have a guy on the show, Kev, who would express himself and give his opinion, uh, controversial and uh, offside and taking people down. Who? Oh, yeah, okay, I got it. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That's another show in the books. Uh, We want to thank all of our sponsors, of course, and Rod Paulson. I see Rod pops in here once in a while now, his beautiful face. Rod's company is In-House Strategies, and they do all the great work on our Facebook and our Facebook page and group, and they manage a bunch of our emails. Thanks a lot, Rod. Uh, If you don't belong to the Facebook group, uh, sign up, man, get in there. Join the conversation. Uh, There's lots that goes on. And a reminder... If you want to email us, again, do it at insidecurling at gmail.com. Kev, this is the second or third trip now of you using air miles. You're going to use them for the next 7,000 days. <laughs> well, curling's going on. You're down in Calgary. Enjoy that. Everyone get out. If you're in Calgary, go watch the uh, the curling that's going on there. Uh, those teams are going to go to the worlds. So good stuff to watch. Thank you to Sports Interaction, Coyote Boost and Goldline, who make all of this possible. Take it easy. See you, Warren. See you, Kevin. Thanks, Jimmy.
1: Thanks, Jim.